0: Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 137 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible questions, why are trials necessary, and why does God make us go through troubles? So, hello, friends. Happy Thursday to you. Today, Lord willing, my daughter and I are headed back from Colorado to sunny Salinas, California, And this episode is actually being recorded on Monday, May 11th. It will likely be a shorter than normal episode, but you know what? I can never tell at the beginning, so just ignore those kind of predictions now and in the future. Bible readings today include Numbers chapter 23, Psalm 64 and 65, Isaiah 13, and our focus passage, which is 1 Peter 1. Our big Bible question is one that all of us have asked innumerable times. I know I have. Why do we go through trials and troubles and difficulties? Now, the theological answer to that question is actually fairly easy because the Bible frequently covers it over and over and over again. I say it should be fairly easy, but in this day and age of, you know, kind of ignoring Scripture, it isn't always easy. Some people have a very hard time with the idea that God sends trials, troubles, and afflictions on his people from time to time. Actually, a Christian Facebook friend of mine recently posted that it was utterly impossible for God to have anything to do with the current current coronavirus situation because he only does good and helpful things for his people in the New Testament times. Now, she realizes that in the Old Testament, God sometimes punished or refined his people, but he certainly doesn't do that anymore in New Testament times. Well, the trouble with that reasoning is that it is absolutely and utterly anti-biblical. The New Testament is really pretty crystal clear that God allows and sends trials on his people and that he disciplines his people. Now, I'm not saying that the coronavirus is that. God hasn't told me what the coronavirus is. I'm just saying that God does allow and send and cause Christians to go through discipline, affliction, trouble, and suffering, and for good reason. Now, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, says the writer of Hebrews, but it does help us in the long run. The book of Romans tells us that all things, discipline, blessing, affliction, troubles, good things, and bad work together for the good of those who are called by God. So, when trials and troubles come, and they will, we remember that they are sent by a loving God for our long-term good. God is always playing the ultimate game, the long game. He's not short-sighted like us. He's working things long-term for our good In his glory. Hebrews twelve seven through eleven says, Endure suffering as discipline, God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Pause. Did you catch that? Those who aren't disciplines are not children of God. Those who aren't disciplined are not. They're not legitimate. That's pretty striking. Verse 9, furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. It's for our benefit. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Unfortunately for us, the practical answer to the question of why we go through trials can be a little more challenging. Not because the answer is any different from the theological answer, but because of our humanness, I suppose. I know, personally, I I know the theological answer to the question of why God allows suffering. I've preached it, I've podcasted about it, I've written books on it, and I've counseled people with it, but that doesn't mean for some reason, because I'm such a Thick-headed clot. Sometimes it does. I don't immediately recall the biblical truths and comfort myself with them when I go through trials. Oh no! Would that I did! But every time a new trial hits me personally or my family, it's like I have this this spiritual amnesia where I completely forget, at least for a moment, the biblical truths about going through difficulties and just moan and grieve and waller about. Maybe you do the same thing. So, as a reminder. For us that are suffering trials, or will soon suffer trials, in other words, all of us, here are ten good things that come out of trials, discipline, affliction, trouble, etc. Note, I'm intentionally conflating, or combining, or pushing together, Trials, discipline, troubles, and affliction here, because the bottom line is we often don't know from our perspective which one we are dealing with. Is this discipline? Is it a trial? Is it an affliction? Is it a trouble? Is it a tribulation? Well, we, we don't know. At least I don't know. Maybe you're far clev- cleverer than I am, but I don't often know what's going on. Um, exactly, but I do know and trust that God sent it for my good and benefit and his glory. And that's a comfort when I actually remember it and let loose of my spiritual amnesia. So, ten things that come out of trials, discipline, affliction, trouble, etc., that are good. Number one, discipline from God means that we are His children, and that comforts us. We just read that in Hebrews 12. Also in Hebrews 12. Number two, discipline in trials ultimately produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In other words, it trains us to walk in godliness and make good choices. Number three, Trials result in a praiseworthy faith at the culmination of our life. So says 1 Peter 1, seven. Number four, trials produce in us perseverance and endurance. In the same way that a soccer coach who runs his players hard during practice helps them become faster, stronger, and have more endurance during games... So does God sending us through trials equip us for life in a better way and protect us from giving up. We learn this in James 1 2 through 3, which says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Number 5, James 1 4, the very next verse. We learn that going through trials ultimately makes us more mature as believers better able to lead and help others and better able to excel through the storms of life in a fallen world. Verse four says, let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Number six, not only do trials produce endurance, maturity and perseverance, but they also cause hope to arise in us as God carries us through each trial. Romans 5, three through four says, blessed is the one who endures trials Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So we know that enduring through these trials will cause us to receive this wonderful blessing of the crown of life and the just blessing in general of going through a trial. So that produces in us hope. Number seven, those who experience the suffering of trials, afflictions, and discipline will also experience an overflow of comfort from the Lord. Second Corinthians 1, through 5-7 says, For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. It comes. Comfort comes when God takes us through suffering. When we go through suffering, whatever the cause is, Christ's comfort comes to us. That's good. Verse 7 says, Our hope for you is firm because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so also you share in the comfort. Number 8. In the same way that a watermelon seed sown into the ground will ultimately produce a delicious and wonderful watermelon, our sufferings and afflictions will ultimately produce great and eternal glory in our lives. 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18 Therefore, we do not give up, even though the, our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed by, day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we don't focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Number nine, when you suffer for a good reason, for righteous reasons, then Jesus says directly and unequivocally that you will receive eternal reward for such suffering. Matthew five ten and 11, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Finally, we learned from, this is number 10, we learned from James chapter one that enduring trials will win a crown of life for faithful followers of Jesus. No trial we go through is unfruitful, and neither are they unrewarded. and always possible every, and I mean, every trial that you go through is going to be worth far more than it costs you to go through. James 1:12 says, "Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, that's a lot of reasons to rejoice in affliction and endure. God is faithful. We must cling to him. I know you're going to be surprised the next time you go through a trial, or if you're going through one right now, you're going to be surprised, because I'm always surprised. But know in the deepest part of your mind and heart that God is going to ultimately bring you through it. He is going to ultimately reward you for going through it, and he is ultimately doing good for you and for his glory as he carries you through this trial. Numbers chapter 23, verse 1. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. So Balak did as Balaam directed, and they offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, Stay here by your burnt offering while I am gone. Maybe the the Lord will meet with me. I will tell you whatever he reveals to me. So he went to a barren hill. God met, met with him, and Balaam said to him, I have arranged seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then the Lord put a message in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak and say what I tell you. So he returned to Balak, who was standing there by his burnt offering with all the officials of Moab. Balaam proclaimed his poem, "'Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, put a curse on Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse someone God has not cursed? How can I denounce someone the Lord has not denounced? I see them from the top of rocky cliffs, and I watch them from the hills. There is a people living alone. It does not consider itself among the nations.' Who has counted the dust of Jacob or numbered even one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright. Let the end of my life be like theirs. What have you done to me? Balak asked Balaam. I brought you here to curse my enemies, but look, you've only blessed them. He answered, Shouldn't I say exactly what the Lord puts in my mouth? Then Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place where you can see them. You will only see the outskirts of their camp. You won't see all of them. From there, put a curse on them for me. So Balak took him to look out field on top of Pisgah, built seven altars, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, Stay here by your burnt offering while I seek the Lord over there. The Lord met with Balaam and put a message in his mouth, and he said, Return to Balak and say what I tell you. So he returned to Balak, who was standing there by his burnt offering with the officials of Moab. Balak asked him, What did the Lord say? Balaam proclaimed his poem. Balak, get up and listen, son of Zippor, pay attention to what I say. God is not a man that he might lie, or a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act, or promise and not fulfill? I have indeed received a command to bless. Since he is blessed, I cannot change it. He considers no disaster for Jacob. He sees no trouble for Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and there is rejoicing over the king among them. God brought them out of Egypt. He is like the horns of a wild ox for them. There is no magic curse against Jacob and no divination against Israel. It will now be said about Jacob and Israel what great things God has done. A people rise up like a lioness. They rouse themselves like a lion. They will not lie down until they devour the prey and drink the blood of the slain. Then Balak told Balaam, Don't curse them and don't bless them. But Balaam answered, Didn't I tell you? Whatever the Lord says, I must do. Again, Balak said to Balaam, Please come. I take you to another place. Maybe it will be agreeable to God that you can put a curse on them from there for me. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the wasteland. Balaam told Balak, Build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. So Balak did as Balaam said and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Psalm chapter 64 verse 1. God, hear my voice when I am in anguish. Protect my life from the terror of the enemy. Hide me from the scheming of wicked people, from the mob of evildoers who sharpen their tongues like swords and aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from concealed places at the blameless. They shoot at him suddenly and are not afraid. They adopt an evil plan. They talk about hiding traps and say, Who will see them? They devise crimes and say, We have perfected a secret plan. The inner man and the heart are mysterious, but God will shoot them with arrows. Suddenly they will be wounded, they will be made to stumble, their own tongues work against them. All who see them will shake their heads. Then everyone will fear and will tell about God's work, for they will understand what he has done. The righteous one rejoices in the Lord and takes refuge in him. All those who are upright in heart will offer praise. Psalm, chapter 65, verse 1. Praise is rightfully yours, God, in Zion. Vows to you will be fulfilled. All humanity will come to you, the one who hears prayer. Iniquities overwhelm me. Only you can atone for our rebellions. How happy is the one you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. You answer us in righteousness with all inspiring works. God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the distant seas, You establish the mountains by your power. You are robed with strength. You silence the roar of the seas, the roar of the waves, and the tumult of the nations. Those who live far away are awed by your signs. You make east and west shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it abundantly, enriching it greatly. God's stream is filled with water, for you prepare the earth in this way, providing people with grain. You soften it with showers and bless its growth, soaking its furrows, and leveling its ridges. You crown the year with your goodness. Your carts overflow with plenty. The wilderness pastures overflow, and the hills are robed with joy. The pastures are clothed with flocks, and the valleys covered with grain. They shout in triumph. Indeed, they sing. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 1. A pronouncement concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw. Lift up a banner on a barren mountain. Call out to them. Signal with your hand, and they will go through the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. Yes, I've called my warriors who celebrate my triumph to execute my wrath. Listen, a commotion on the mountains like that of a mighty people. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations being gathered together. The Lord of armies is mobilizing an army for war. They are coming from a distant land, from the farthest horizon, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole community, the whole country. Wait, wail, for the day of the Lord is near." It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, everyone's hands will become weak, and every man will lose heart. They will be horrified. Pain and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look at each other, their faces flushed with fear. Look, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the earth a desolation and to destroy its sinners. Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shine. I will punish the world for its evil and wicked people for their iniquities. I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant and humiliate the insolence of the tyrants. I will make a human more scarce than fine gold and mankind more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its foundations at the wrath of the Lord of armies on the day of his burning anger." Like wandering gazelles and like sheep without a shepherd, each one will turn to his own people. Each one will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be stabbed and whoever is caught will die by the sword. Their children will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives raped. Look, I am stirring up the meads against them, who cannot be bought off with silver and who have no desire for gold. Their bows will cut young men to pieces." They will have no compassion on offspring. They will not look with pity on children. And Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the glory of the pride of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. A nomad will not pitch his tent there, and shepherds will not let their flocks rest there, but desert creatures will lie down there, and owls will fill the houses, ostriches will... Dwell there and wild goats will leap about, hyenas will howl in the fortresses, and jackals in the luxurious palaces. Babylon's time is almost up, her days are almost over. First Peter, one verse one Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living in as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for his salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now, for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though not seeing Him now, you believe in Him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be so reminded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work— you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart, love one another constantly, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Amen. And indeed, brothers and sisters, hang your hat on it. The word of the Lord does endure forever and will endure forever. Good day to you and Godspeed.